This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 21 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another awesome guest. He is an iOS and Mac developer. He's also a great speaker and a blogger, and he's the creator of Photodesk for Mac. It's Benedict Terhechte. Welcome to the show, Benedict. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So uh, we've met quite a few times now, and what I love is that every time uh, we meet, we always have these like really interesting discussions about like the Swift Standard Library and you know things like that. So I thought, you know, let's have you on the show and let's have some of these discussions so other people can listen as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And um, as you say, we are always having interesting discussions. So uh, let's let's see where it leads us today. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's all exciting. So one thing that we have in common, uh, we have a bunch of things in common, but uh, one thing that is pretty interesting, I think, is that we've both decided to basically spend 80% of our time working on our main day jobs and then 20% of our time on our kind of uh, hobby projects or, you know, outside projects. So uh, what kind of made you take that decision, like to kind of reduce your day job time to 80% instead of 100%? So the initially what drove me in that direction was that um, my last job before the one I had now um, ended in 2011, uh, which was when I... Um, went indie and did indie development for five years. And as an indie developer, basically, I was very, very free in what I could do and how I would spend my time and how I would organize my time. And when I decided I would go back to a regular job, for me, it felt like I really wanted to keep a bit of that flexibility. And uh, the company that I work for, um, Xing in in Hamburg, it's a a German company, they, um, they offer a the possibility of um, 80% jobs for everybody. Oh, that's great. So everybody who works there can just apply for one and get it. And so once I learned about that, I was like, oh, yeah, I want that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's been like that ever since, and I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's like, for me, it's been such a great change to actually reduce my time a little bit on my day job. Not because I don't like my day job, I really like it, but it's like, if you want to do a lot of other things as well it's great to have that extra day to just like be focused and basically spend that day as if you were working normally but you can work on your kind of extra stuff that you do on the side totally there's um, open source work to work on and then there um, one can work on blogging or learn new technologies new languages or maybe if you're interested in sports go and work out much longer than you could actually during the week yeah Nice. So uh, you are doing both iOS and Mac development, which I think is pretty cool. So I guess that most of the people listening to the show are mostly kind of focusing on iOS, but I know that a lot of people are very curious about Mac development as well. So how did you kind of get started with that? I think you actually got started with Mac development before iOS, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I um, I bought my first Mac actually in 2002, which was an iBook. And I, bu- I bought it mostly because before that I was using Linux and Windows and I was doing PHP backend development and I was doing graphics stuff with Photoshop. And I would do the PHP stuff in Linux and then boot to Windows and do something in Photoshop and then boot back again. And th- that felt terrible. And I-, I was looking for something where I could have everything at the same time. And then I- 
it dawned upon me that, oh, the Mac has it, right? You have Photoshop and you have a terminal and so on. So I bought one I, I with hard-earned money. And um, after using it for a couple of years, I really wanted to create these beautiful-looking applications myself. Like I was using all these great apps on the Mac. That This was like in 2004, 2005. And so I started looking into Objective-C, which felt really alien to me back then, coming from languages like Python or uh, PHP. Um, well, and then I, I started writing Mac apps like in 2005. And um, so that's really how I started with Objective-C. That's really cool. Uh, it's funny because for me, and I think it was similar for many people, you know, coming from these languages like JavaScript or PHP and diving into Objective-C, I mean, a lot of people criticize PHP for its weird syntax with like the dollar signs and things. Uh, but yeah, Objective-C was definitely feeling the biggest kind of challenge was just kind of wrapping your head around the syntax. Yeah, and um, when you start with PHP, you, you do these weird HTML and PHP in one file things, and you quickly learn that that's not how you should do it. And then at a certain point, you write, I guess, much better PHP because it's much clearer, while with Objective-C, you're already forced to write this this clear code, while PHP allows you to, to really write interesting code and nobody is um, complaining about that. Yeah, it would be almost like if you were to insert like Swift or Objective-C code like in Interface Builder, right? In like your, in your labels and things. And XML in between to define the UI. Yeah, exactly. That's how you do it. Awesome. So you learned Objective-C and then of course Swift came out and now I guess you are, like many people in our industry, mostly focused with Swift. And You've been, uh, you know, writing your great blog, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, and uh, you're also working on one app of your own, which is a Mac app called Photodesk. Yeah. Um, when I became an indie developer, that was in 2011. And that was because I had um, written a Mac app called Photodesk, which, well, back then it was called Instadesk. And it was a um, Instagram client for the Mac. And back then in 2011, early 2011, Instagram was the rest are small, unknown startup, kind of, so not many people were using it except in the, the tech area. And then um, I created this client. And then Facebook bought Instagram. And with that, um, the usage radically increased. And so it made enough money for me to actually say, okay, I will drop out of my normal day job and just work on this full time. And that's what I did for like five years. And I released a couple of updates, worked on the app, added a lot of features, did customer support myself, worked on the website. And then at a certain point, it needed um, a server backend and so on. So over those five years, I didn't exclusively work on Instadesk um, or Photodesk, but a lot of work and time went to do that, actually. Yeah, I can totally imagine. What was kind of the biggest hurdle for you, you think, like going independent like that? Because I think that's an idea that many of us have as app developers. We have an idea for an app and, you know, you you had obviously some success with your app and that enabled you to go uh, to go indie. But what were the kind of biggest changes that you had to make to actually make that happen? One thing was the fear. The, the the first couple of months after I went indie, I would every day look at the sales. And when the sales would go down from, let's say, 30 items per day to 25 items per day, I would really become afraid that this trend would continue. And in one month, there would be no money left and I wouldn't know what to do, really. Yeah, that was that kept on for the first couple of months where... I always had that fear and I would continue working on the app and the fear was always there. But at a certain point, it felt stable. And so I did not need to care about that so much. But then the next fear that came was, well, at some point, this might not work anymore because Instagram 
might close the API or there might be a competitor that is much better than me. I should maybe look into alternatives, additional apps that I could write. And and so I, I was afraid of not coming up with a good idea. And so the whole time was was very enjoyable, but there was always fear in the background that I had to to work with. Yeah, I can imagine. And I can also imagine that fear can kind of be a double-edged sword, if you will. It can, like, if you focus too much on it, it can kind of, you know, drag you down and it can make things uh, feel hard and uh, scary. But it can also be a source of motivation, I guess, that it keeps pushing you forward, like keep pushing you to try new ideas and, you know, expand. Absolutely. Um, and that's what I tried. And, and that's actually, interestingly, one of the, the, the second thing that was really hard. Um, and that was that... I tried to work on a lot of different apps. So I, I worked on Photodesk and in between I created a game called Flicker Fruit together with a friend. And then uh, I had an app that allowed you to create um, image collages and a lot of that, like different apps and none of those worked out. So none, none of them made any money. And with every app that you create in addition to the original one that doesn't work out, you become even more afraid and more desperate until you reach a point where you where it feels like, okay, th maybe this one thing was the one hit I had and the one lucky guess and um, the rest just is way too complicated. So um, that's another big problem that you feel you have to do something else and you work on that and uh, and nothing works out. Yeah, exactly. It's this like classic uh, saying that, you know, the people who created Angry Birds, they made a hundred games before or, you know, you hear these stories all the time that, you know, it's easy, I think, when you see something successful to think that, well, this was this person's first attempt and they just nailed it and they kind of won the lottery. But often it's a lot of hard work and a lot of, I mean, not maybe not failure, but well, things that didn't really work out and things you had to change that are kind of behind the successes as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I recently did some research into that to see, to remember what what about those apps I created before and after Photodesk? And even like Photodesk was, a, Photodesk was definitely a success. But before that, I created like 12 or 14 apps that went nowhere. And after that, I created another, let's say, 10 to 15 apps that went nowhere. So um, there was one success in, I would say, 30, 30 apps that are released. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I was lucky in that the app that went somewhere was kind of in the middle, but it could also be at the end. And then the question is, how much longer can you go through yeah, exactly. Great. Uh, what do you say? Should we start diving into our main topics for, for this episode? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Uh, before we do, I just want to give you some very, very quick updates about the show and the format. So as you know, this show has up until this point been heavily focused on Q&A and you know, answering questions from you, the audience. And this is something that uh, we're still going to keep doing, but we're going to dial it down a little bit to focus more on topics that the guests themselves are like really passionate about and they really want to talk about. And I think that's going to make for a more interesting show and also kind of spice things up a little bit. I think it's always good to mix things up and to try new formats. So this is going to be the first episode with this new format. We're still going to do some Q&A at the end, but we're going to uh, stick to topics that uh, me and Benedict have kind of decided on beforehand. So since this is new, uh, feel free to give us any feedback that you have about this format, you know, what was good, what can be improved, and we'll put links to our Twitters in the show notes if you want to contact us there. 
All right, so let's dive into our topics. And the first thing we want to talk about on this episode is Mac developments. We touched on it a little bit before that, Benedict, you've been working a lot with Mac developments. And I think this is super interesting because a lot of people, I think, are very interested in Mac development, but it can seem a little bit intimidating, uh, you know, at the start. And it can be hard to know where to begin. So do you have some tips for iOS developers who know Swift, they have been writing iOS apps, but now they want to get into Mac development. Where should people begin? Sure. One of the the benefits of, I would call it modern Mac development, is that Apple is currently trying to port a lot of things that you know from iOS over to the Mac. So storyboards are available now, and then there's the NS Collection view on uh, Mac that behaves nowadays almost similar to the UI Collection view. Um, and then the NS view controller on the Mac also does a lot of things that the UI view controller on iOS does. So, um, for these higher level, uh, libraries, higher level, um, classes, it's actually become a lot easier. Whereas in the past, the, um, NS table view would behave differently and, um, the NS button would behave differently and the NS view controller was also a lot different. So in that regard, things are actually becoming a bit easier. It's still, is a bit different than iOS. And so it still requires a bit of reading. So you can't just expect that the NS view controller behaves 100% like you expected from iOS. There's, for example, no UI navigation controller or NS navigation controller. So there's still something that is different. Um, but then there's also the, uh, the let's call it the model layer with core data and with um, core text and these things. Um, and there, basically, everything behaves in a very similar way. There are almost no differences. So a lot of those frameworks are available for both platforms in a nice way. Um, and that makes it much easier to start on the to get started on the Mac. Um, and one thing you can do, for example, also is a look a look at um, example apps, simple Mac apps, example apps. The, the, the most interesting thing, I guess, is um, the things you can do in addition to what you can do on iOS. So there's, for example, um, there are things, technologies like Cocoa Bindings, which allow you to um, do, do a bit what Rx Swift does, um, but with interface builder support. Um, and a lot of other things like generate key presses and start Unix, tool, Unix tools from your app and so on. So there, the Mac offers much more possibilities, um, but you don't have to start with that. You can just start with a simple app that uh, just uses Cocoa technologies and then slowly dive into it more and more. So you shouldn't really start with something where you would have to use a lot of unknown technologies. You can just start with the known technologies and then slowly move forward. Yeah, that's a really, really good tip. One thing that I've seen so many people, including myself, kind of stumble on when you get started with Mac development is you want to create a view and you just want to set the background color. <laughs> and when you set the background color in a UI view, you know, you just say dot background color red. But on the Mac, it's a little bit more complicated because kind of mostly for historical reasons, not all views were backed by layers. So it behaves a little bit differently when it comes to like creating the backing layer, which actually does the rendering of the view. And that's the same way it works on iOS too, but it's more kind of abstracted away from us, the core animation layer. We mostly work more with UIKit, but with the Mac, that's kind of more present. Yeah, absolutely. That you will run into small differences all over our AppKit um, compared to UIKit. And this is a good example of that. Um, and there's also um, the issue that the um, coordinate system is flipped which is all right, yeah. only a small change, but you may run into it and wonder what's happening there. Yeah, why is my button in the bottom corner? <laughs> yeah, 
and then then one one problem is also Apple constantly refines macOS, of course. And so recently they they added a change where if you use a um, a CI filter on the CI layer that's backing a view, um, then there's a new property. I, I forgot the name, but it's something like um, uses CI filter for background. And if you're not setting that, then the filter is ignored. And this also doesn't exist on iOS. And so you may just set a CI filter on your on your view because you think, oh, I just want a blur filter, for example, and nothing happens. And um, that's something you have to actually know about or stumble upon, which is another good thing. Um, another thing useful about doing map development basically go through the documentation for NSView and NSWindow and NSView controller and just look at all the methods and see just to get an understanding of what's available. And that makes it much easier to to feel the differences. Yeah, absolutely. There there are a couple of different ways you can approach like learning a new platform. And one of the ways that I think are usually the hardest is if you just try to do exactly what you did on another platform. And you see, you know, people coming from like, let's just say, you know, going from Android to iOS or vice versa, or going from iOS to the Mac, you are so used to certain patterns and that your your first idea might be to just apply all of those patterns directly, while probably it's a better idea to, you know, gain a little bit of a basic understanding of the platform and not fight the system, but instead kind of code your app in kind of a more a Mac way. I concur. Um, and for that, of course, you need to know a bit more about the technologies that the Mac offers. And um, for that, the reading is useful. One thing that I always tell people is to look into the NS Outline View, which is a uh, class that doesn't exist on iOS, but exists on the Mac. And it allows you to create tree-like structures with views. And it's really, really useful for all kinds of things. And oftentimes when you feel like you're missing functionality from iOS that you would usually solve by uh, drilling down into a hierarchy or that would take a lot of work. Um, the NS outline view as an alternative to the NS table view is offers so much, but you may not find it if, if you just approach the Mac like iOS and just search for a alternative table view because it's not a table view. So you have to look for the additional technologies that the Mac offers. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good tip. And we'll put a link in the show note to that class. Um, and on that point, I think one really big advantage of the Mac, I mean, we talked a little bit about the challenges going from iOS, but one thing that I really love about Mac development is that it not, it not only kind of has a lot of legacy, but it also is very mature. And the UI library, like the standard UI components that are available in AppKit, they're so diverse. There's so many things in there and they have so many features. So I think, like you say, familiarizing yourself a little bit more with all of those standard components uh, can be a really, really good way to kind of get started. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the Mac offers a lot of things that you wouldn't even consider are possible when you come from iOS. Um, obviously, you can release apps without a sandbox and without an app store, right? So you can just write an app, send it to friends, and uh, just put it on your website and people can run it. And then you can run AppleScript, for example, to co remote control other apps running at the same time as your Mac. Or you can use something called CG Display Stream to actually get a texture, stream texture from the whole display that you can modify and, and do 3D transformations on. And you can create um, listeners for key events so that basically every keyboard touch the, the user does as actually being uh, recorded and so on. And there's a lot of things that you might not even consider using because it's not possible on iOS, but the Mac is very, very open in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's say now that I wanted to create a Mac app and uh, I, I'm kind of 
thinking about what kind of idea I should pursue. Like you've created a lot of different apps. So what is usually your thinking when it comes to like coming up with something that you could you could write for the Mac? One advantage that the Mac has is that fewer people obviously develop for it. And um, that means that oftentimes there's something really cool for the iPad or for the iPhone, but that doesn't exist on the Mac. So that's one venue that you can go and just see, could I create something like that for the Mac? Or, um, and that this is usually what I did, is um, if there is a certain service that offers an API, um, you may, they usually have a very good iPad or, or iPhone general iOS client, um, but there's nothing for the Mac. And then you can consider, well, could I create a really good client for this API for the Mac that, that offers a lot of functionalities and uses the native technologies of the Mac. So it's not an electron wrapper, but it actually offers native performance and so on and, and, and uses all these Mac services in a good way. And, and that's usually a nice way to start. Um, another thing is to take something that feels difficult on the Mac. Um, let's say um, clipboard handling, for example, uh, that is... Um, accessing the clipboard history and just trying to create a wrapper that and a nice UI that makes it easier. Yeah, totally. And uh, like we mentioned, uh, like since the UI library is so diverse, uh, one thing I find fascinating about the Mac is that you can basically like put together your entire UI in, in interface builder and you don't have to do any customizations and it looks great. <laughs> While on iOS, if you would do the same, it would kind of look boring. Yeah, and I, I, to me, it also feels like on the Mac, the standard look is pretty much what users expect. Yeah. While on iOS, users kind of expect the the custom look. Yeah, exactly. You know, impress me with your cool visuals and your animations and your your uh, swipe gestures. One thing that I usually do is I just create a bunch of different utilities for myself. And I think that's a great way to get started as well, where, you know, if you have something you do repetitively, of course, you can like write a script for it or something like that, uh, which is also a great solution. But sometimes, you know, it can be fun to build a little UI on top of it. And uh, you can even build a UI that kind of calls into some script or some command line tool. And that can be a great way to get started well, kind of just solve a problem for yourself. Yeah. And um, there, again, the, the, the Mac offers some interesting possibilities. One thing I built for myself, and I, I'm never going to release it because it, the code is awful and it's very it breaks e e uh, even faster than anything else I ever built, is that um, I wanted to have additional shortcuts in Xcode and that, that Apple doesn't offer. And so what I did was I used the Apple technologies to um, the accessibility APIs to drill down through the Xcode hierarchy to find the, the button that I need and then generate a fake button event a, a fake mouse event and then press this button and this allows me to allow me to actually um have more shortcuts for xcode that that apple doesn't offer just by writing an app that generates key um, mouse events and triggers certain buttons where there's no shortcut for and that's a really nice tool to have that's awesome <laughs> Great. Uh, another thing I think um, that comes to mind when you know you want to get started with Mac development is code sharing. That you might want to write like an, a Mac version of an iOS app that you have, and of course you don't want to write that from scratch because it's the same language, you know, Swift on both ends. So it would usually be a good idea to try to share as much code as possible. But because of the differences we just talked about, that can sometimes be a bit challenging. So do you have some tips around like how to structure your code in a way that enables you to share more of your logic from your iOS app into your Mac app as well? That's a great question. Um, I, I had a couple of apps where I tried to, to optimize in this area. And I, to me, it feels like there's, this is a multi-step process where you can start with a very simple step. And that is 
um, you have your model layer in a framework and you share this framework with um, the iOS and the macOS app, which is the, the most obvious solution. Um, since in the model layer, you may only use, uh, probably use Coreta, for example, or Realm, um, you already have code that works on both platforms. Um, you don't even have to create two different frameworks. There's uh, There are solutions so you can um, create one framework that can be used on iOS and on macOS at the same time. So that makes it a lot easier. And then you have a couple of um, different classes like UI font and NS font or UI color and NS color. And there you can basically just write small schisms or uh, type aliases yeah. um, to, to wrap those. So those are really the, the, the most basic steps. Um, and then beyond that, if you if you make sure that you are not using any UI code in your controller layer, you can also try to move all the logic from the controller layer into a separate framework. That is possible if you um, if you try to be very strict about that. And um, one thing that that I once did, and I really like that approach, is that uh, because you have the NS view controller and the UI view controller, um, and they are kind of different, and the same goes for for all, a lot of other classes. I created protocols for all of those. So there was the view protocol, the view controller protocol, um, the navigation controller protocol, a button protocol, table view protocol, and so on. And um, you basically just use those protocols, um, and the types are inserted. Um, for the individual platform as you have view controller and as view controller. And then you can really share a lot of code. And the, the only difference in the end that you have to care about is the protocol implementation for the individual platform. And this allows you to almost write your whole app in a multi-platform way. Now, the dif the difference and the difficulty there is to how you approach that with, with having a different UI for both platforms that, that fit both platforms well. Yeah, exactly. I think in general, that's a really good approach if you want to write more kind of uh, easier to port code. And it also makes testing so much easier if you're, you know, it's this classic like protocol oriented way of programming uh, that we've now been, you know, it's become more and more popular in, in the Swift community. And I think it makes a ton of sense for these kind of use cases. Um, another thing that I usually do in this scenario is to use the presenter pattern a little bit, where if you have something, like you say, which has very different presentation on on different platforms or even on like on the iPad or on a large screen or something like that, is that you can have a presenter that kind of holds the logic and like drives the UI. And then you, like you say, you can have protocol implementations of different actual views that you use to render, but the kind of logic and the data binding and all that kind of things can be shared between platforms. Yeah, that's a really great way of doing it. And it looks like if we were to believe the rumors that is currently going on, it also looks like Apple is kind of taking steps in this direction. Uh, there's a rumor that they are working on something called Project Marzipan, where uh, it will be easier to share code or you will have one kind of UI library for both uh, iOS and the Mac. And me and Guy Rambo, we already talked a little bit about this on our other podcast called Stacktrace. But I thought it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on this as a Mac developer. What do you think about this Marzipan rumor? And do you think it's feasible for Apple to create like one framework for both of their major platforms? As a, as a Mac developer, I'm actually really, really excited about this. Um, and the, the, one of the reasons is that 
Um, I hope that this in the future will lead to a device that offers the best of the Mac and the best of the iPad, which is something that currently doesn't doesn't exist. I To me, it feels like for a lot of things, let's say watching Netflix, downloading Netflix or using Instapaper, you would want to have an iPad because it's much easier to read stuff and to consume stuff. And then when you want to do development, you really need an additional MacBook um, because development on the iPad, there's still a, a lackluster of options of, of doing like serious development there. And uh, Marzipan feels like the first step of what Apple may offer in the future, where you have one device that that works in a lot of different um, different scenarios. And um, a, as we said earlier, the, um, the Cocoa and AppKit API on the Mac has a lot of difficulties. It's also very open and offers a lot of possibilities, but it's also difficult to learn. And we ended up in a situation where there are much less apps for the Mac than there are for, for iPad, for example, and really high quality apps like, like for example, a really good Netflix client. And as I earlier said, a nice Instapaper client. And um, being able to take one app and release it for both platforms obviously sounds like a fantastic solution. The, the question is how they are going to pull this off. And the other question I have is how much of what makes the Mac the Mac, like all the additional technologies, will be lost in this transition? Yeah, the the danger, I guess, is that we end up with something that is, you know, we end up with something that is too much in the middle, where it's like a, not a great iOS experience, it's not a great Mac experience. And especially if the trend keeps going the way it's going and that iOS becomes like more and more of a focus, the risk, I guess, is that the apps on the Mac using this hypothetical new framework might just behave like kind of scaled up iOS apps. And that is not always something we want on the Mac. We want like more of these like powerful features and this more like UI that is very tailored to a mouse and a keyboard. Um, so the, the big question, I guess, is like, what kind of level of abstraction would be uh, good in order to like provide those like very differentiated, nice experiences? We talked a little bit about how we can do it ourselves with like presenters or protocols or, you know, controllers that are not view controllers. But do you think that's that's something that this Marzipan framework might do, that it might just have these these kind of um, objects instead of just having like view controllers, views and these kind of things that Apple have up until this point been using? That would be an interesting approach and it would probably also mean that it would be Swift only. Um, currently, so far, what I am expecting is something much closer to tvOS where uh, you have something that is very much like um, like iOS but it has certain additional UI paradigms um, for displaying the UI. And those were, would then be more Mac-centric. That's kind of what I'm expecting. But a, a controller, a, a protocol-oriented approach would also be very, very cool. The problem there is then that porting your iPad app would be a lot of work suddenly. So I, I would, to me, it feels like if Apple releases something here, it should be something um, that makes it easy to port an iPad app over to the Mac instead of requiring you to, to invest a lot of work to port it over. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, given that the majority of developers are focusing on iOS. And like you say, there are so many kind of quick wins that could happen if we were able to just like easily move our iPad based code and still make it feel nice on the Mac. Yeah. And then there's also the question of um, multi-touch and, and custom UI that you write for iOS that, that requires multi-touch and that's not really possible on the Mac either. So how do, how do you cope with that? And I'm really, really interested in, in this rumor and, and what actually will come out of it. Yeah, me too. 
I, I thought about the name for because the name is quite intriguing. And what I came up with is that um, Macintosh, really, like the Mac, the Macintosh, that's the name of a certain type of Apple. And when you take, like, what people often do with marzipan is they build fake apples out of marzipan. Ooh. ooh. So this may lead to basically, it, it looks like a Mac app because it's. It, it's a fake apple. It, it, it looks like it, but when you bite into it, it's much sweeter. <laughs> that was my best guess. That is a that is that is a great explanation. I hope that becomes the official explanation. <laughs> it's like a fake apple, but when you bite it, it becomes sweeter. <laughs> the sweeter Mac app. The sweeter Mac app. That's great. Awesome. Um, yeah, let's uh, move over now to our next topic. But before we do, I want to take a very quick break and thank our next sponsor. And it's my good friends at Bitrise. Now, you've heard me talk many times on the show about unit testing, UI testing, continuous integration, and how all these things are very important in order to be able to ship an app quickly and with high quality. And this is exactly what Bitrise makes extremely easy and much more. What Bitrise is, is a fast, reliable, and easy to use continuous integration service. What you can do is that you can construct these workflows and you can all construct them visually using like this nice UI on the web where you can decide like when you want to run your tests, how you want to build your app, and if you want to like send betas to uh, your testers or ship to the app store. And you can even use tools like Danger and Fastlane, which is, you know, super nice and flexible. Now, I've just finished setting up Bitrise for one of the client projects that I work on, and it's been really awesome. Because using Bitrise, what I can do is that I can have it run a build, run all the tests, and send a beta build to all the testers and to the client on every single commit that I make. So I don't have to do any local builds, I don't have to worry about code signing, I don't have to upload to the App Store manually, and I don't have to run like a Mac Mini in my closet. I can just have it all on Bitrise and it all just works. So here's what you can do. In your podcast player right now, there will be a link in the current chapter that you can click. Or you can also go to the show notes of this episode and there will be a link there as well. And you can just click that link, it will take you to Bitrise and you can sign up for free. You can even run up to 200 builds per month for free as well. And after that, the pricing scales really nicely as well. So give it a try and see what Bitrise can do for you and your team. And please remember to use that link in the show notes because it will tell Bitrise that you came from the show, which really helps support my work. Thank you so much to Bitrise for sponsoring Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue make this show possible. All right, so uh, now we want to talk a little bit more about the Swift standard library. So I mentioned earlier that we've had many discussions about this, like, you know, the way the standard library is structured and what you can do with it and how you can extend it. So you wrote a blog post a while back about extending uh, Swift's optional type. And it seems like you, you work a lot with extensions and I kind of do as well. So when do you kind of decide to write an extension on a standard library type versus creating like your own class or your own structure? Usually I, I start with an extension first. It's, um, it's the easier to do. And more importantly, it's easier to discover. If I have uh, an extension on a standard type, let's say string, I can say string point, and then Xcode will already give me the possibilities that I have. And that makes it much easier to discover rather than remembering the, the weird name I gave to whatever new type I introduced into the code base. Um, and oftentimes that's sufficient. If I have a couple of methods that I need on string, I just add them to string. Um, at some point though, um, you may hit a roadblock where um, you need state 
And once you need state, obviously, uh, let's say an integer or um, another string or a struct that is required for whatever you're doing in um, in your methods, um, then certainly it makes more sense to, to move everything into its own type. Um, or when you realize that you have multiple methods on an extension and then the result of one method goes into the next method and from there into another method, that's also a point where, where you should consider creating your own type. Um, I'm, I'm always trying to keep it an extension as long as possible until it really feels like I should create a type like like the at a point where the code basically demands to be a type. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, especially if you need storage, then, you know, there are hacks you can do. But like I, we discussed it on a, on a previous episode as well. That's probably not a good idea. And it's probably better to like cl create a clearly defined type in that case. But I agree with you. I think that one really nice characteristic of a sign library is how protocol oriented it is and how easy it is to extend. So if you want to like write a an extra method on sequence or on string or something like that, it's it's very easy to do and you can easily create like your your utility methods. Um, usually the way I think about it is that an extension on a type needs to kind of make sense for that type regardless of what where it's being used. So I wouldn't necessarily like create an extension on like URL that's only relevant for URLs for this specific request, for example. And if I do, I would make it a private extension. Yeah, that, that feeds absolutely right to me. And with generics, you can even say that um, this extension with, with this method um, is, makes only sense for a collection that has this certain type. And so then it's not even feasible for anything else. Yeah, that's a really good point. And now we also have conditional conformances in Swift 4.1, where we can easily add extensions to a type uh, to conform to a certain protocol only under certain conditions. So we can make like a collection of uh, printable objects, uh, make that collection also conform to printable, for example. Yeah, that uh, this is one of the, the really nice additions that Swift 4.1 brought. Yeah. So I think in general, the idea of extending optionals is pretty interesting because uh, this is something you can get to with a little bit of a deep dive. At first, you might, you know, you know that Swift uses optionals, but after a while, when you start digging into the standard library and looking at the code, you realize that an optional in Swift is actually an enum. Yeah, and that is something that allows you to understand how easy it is to build some, like an optional yourself, basically, because it's also a very simple enum. Um, but then it also feels like there's a lot of things you could do with an enum optional um, that the the current optional, as it is in the standard library, doesn't offer. Like simple things, for example, to ask whether it is empty or not empty. Now you can check whether it's nil or whether it's um, the optional type uh, none, for example. Um, but it would be nice to have a method that just allows you to ask whether it's empty without having you requiring to un to know that it actually is an optional, uh, it actually is an enum. Yeah, exactly. One thing that I uh, do a lot is I add an extension on string, or I can even add it on the collection type now as well, where uh, you can ask an optional string if it's nil or empty, which is pretty useful if you have optional text, like for example, on a UI text field. Yeah, that's, that's a smart extension. That's a really, really good idea. Um, one thing that I always add, and this to me feels like it's something that could be added to the standard library, is um, when you have an optional um, and you want to um, get the value from the optional or throw, an, uh, throw a Swift error. 
Oh yeah, that's a good one. I add that in all my code bases and it feels like I, I can understand why it's difficult to add it to the standard library because some you have to know which error should be thrown there. Do you want to define a standard error basically for empty optional? Um, or would you, um, would you when you call the, the, the method to, to retrieve the value, um, give it the error, the possible error to be thrown as an argument. So where does the error come from? That's kind of the problem, but it still feels like that's something that's solely needed. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, this is a great tool to have when you are writing, for example, a, a script or a command line tool, when you want the code to be like, you know, kind of very, very imperative, which is like, do this, then this, then this, like line by line. And instead of having all these like guard statements or if lets, you can just say, you know, uh, if if get this argument as an optional or throw and then do the try in front of that. And that way you can just write your code this way without this kind of nesting and it can all kind of just work out. Yeah. Or when you do a server-side Swift development, for example, in Vapor, where everything is uses um, throwing functions and methods. So then whenever something goes wrong, you just throw. And what happens is it will drill down the hierarchy and the user will see a, an error message and you don't even have to catch it because in the end, the error will appear at the user if you want, obviously. And so um, that that's a very, very nice way to program because um, you're, you're not having any do-catch blocks and you don't have to care about optionals so much. You just do your try and you get whatever result you have. And if not, well, it will drill, it will go down the, the, down the responder chain. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Speaking of extensions, you also wrote a very interesting blog post just a couple of days ago about Swift system packages and kind of like a little bit as a call to action to the community to, uh, you know, extend uh, the standard library and create kind of these packages to fill in the gaps where Swift kind of doesn't cover ground. So... Uh, for example, you're talking a little bit about, you know, uh, all these utilities that you might need when you're doing server-side Swift development or, you know, things that are very common. So can you start by kind of just summarizing a little bit, like, what do you mean with system packages and why do you feel like there are currently, there's currently kind of a lack of system packages for Swift? So um, I, I can actually start this with, with a small story. I um, like last November I was on vacation, and um, on vacation I decided to to read uh, the Rust book because I felt like why why not have a look what this language is about. So I decided to to just read the book and maybe write a bit of code with it and and just to compare it with Swift for example and to see how similar they are and how different. And uh, the company I work for, um, three times a year, it has something called a hack week, where one week we can basically work on anything we want. And in February, February there was hack week, and I decided I wanted to write a command line client in, written in Swift for a certain problem that I wanted to solve. And so I, um, I started out by basically coming up with the, the, the things that I need. And then I went to GitHub to look for packages, for the, the system packages, basically, for the necessary tools that I needed. And I came back blank. Like a lot of things that I wanted weren't available. And uh, since Hack Week is all about hacking and not about writing a perfect app, I didn't want to start writing these packages myself for just for writing the app in the end. And then I remembered that I had written this Rust book and had played around with Rust a bit in, in between. And I wondered, well, maybe I can do it in Rust because Rust felt a lot like Swift. That actually, in many ways, the languages are similar. And um, I looked at Rust and everything I needed was there. And, and even more. And so that's where I remembered, well, there, there seems to be a mismatch between uh, the, the package packages we have because Swift has a lot of good packages, but many of them are AI, UI related and there's much less um, packages for 
database connections, cryptography, um, handing the console for input and output, uh, and many other things. And um, then when Swift 4.1 came out, um, I stumbled upon this um, article on Hacker News, where um, all the commenters were discussing Swift, and everybody was like, so is it, can we use Swift now? Is it interesting? And a lot of the comments said basically, well, you can try, but there are almost no system packages. You can almost you can't really use many databases, and there are a lot of list, like a, there are a lot of system packages missing. And that's when I thought, well, it seems I wasn't the only one who, who felt like that. And that was for me the impetus to say, okay, let's maybe write this um, write this blog post to see if I, if I can motivate p more people to um, write system packages for Swift and not necessarily more UIKit related packages. Because what we want is um, we want Swift to be a, a very fantastic, hugely popular language. And for that, we need to attract people from outside of the Apple domain because the people in the Apple development domain, um, they already use Swift. And we want to, to have people that maybe they are currently using Python or C++. And if they are to become interested in Swift, they need packages for their daily work. And that may not necessarily be iOS or macOS development, but instead um, orchestrating containers, um, administering your system, doing something with uh, Linux pr processes or CPUs, um, connecting to databases and so on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think there are a couple of issues here. Like one of them I think is a little bit discoverability because there, there's a lot of packages out there in Swift, but some of them might be like work in progress. Some of them might not be, you know, something you want to use in production uh, and just experiments. And some of them are, are great and they actually solve a lot of these kind of system level use cases, but they can be really hard to find. Uh, so I think discoverability is kind of kind of one thing where it's like there's it's 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 apart from CocoaPods, which is more related to you know the kind of standard apps and not much so much for um, for maybe server side Swift or scripting and things like that. Uh, it can be kind of tricky to find these packages sometimes. And then I think also the the thing that you say, which is like as developers in the Apple community, we tend to be kind of focused on UI stuff because you know it's. Part of what makes Apple's platform so nice is that they have great UI frameworks. They have, uh, you know, great UI and design, and it might it's easy to kind of get get very focused on that. Yeah, and the the payoff for a nice UI library is also much higher because it's very visual. You can show it to friends. You can show it even to your girlfriend or spouse, and she will say, "Oh, this looks nice." While a system library, well, try showing that to your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's harder to create a nice animated GIF to show the. <laughs> to show the system libraries. Uh, one thing uh, that I did uh, like a, a year or so ago is that I created a small uh, Swift package called Shellouts. And the idea behind that was that it, which, to make it easy to call uh, things on the command line from Swift. So my idea with that was that I think many of these system packages, how they could actually be implemented is as simple kind of Swift APIs on top of a command line tool. So for example, let's say you want to write the Git client, you don't have to write the entire Git implementation, you could just write like a nice object oriented API that just calls down into Git on the command line. That sounds like a really, really useful package, um, because it removes the complexity that is otherwise required to, to understand how to do this. And this to me, feels like it's also a great way of creating system packages in, in Swift by removing additional complexity. You take something that may be already be possible with Swift today, but maybe it takes 50 lines of code, and you create a nice Swifty API around it, and now it takes two lines of code. 
Yeah, absolutely. And especially when we're talking about system APIs, like handling files, uh, you know, talking to the command line, performing like more low level networking, observing changes to the file system, you know, databases, these kind of things. Usually the APIs are there, but they're either like command line based or they are like in C or they are, uh, you know, very different on different platforms and writing some kind of wrapper on top of this to make it more user friendly. It can be a really great approach. Yeah. Absolutely, you can see that with um, crypto cryptography on on the Mac because there or on iOS and the Mac there is a library, but you can't use it from from Swift, and so um, like common crypto. And so everybody has written, like lots of people have written really nice wrappers around it. And so because that's something you need on iOS and on the Mac. So this is a system library where um, where actually we have great wrappers and we have great tooling because people needed it. Yeah, exactly. So. If people want to start writing system libraries, I know in your blog post, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, you had this like nice list of kind of potential ideas for system libraries or packages. Uh, but what do you think is like a good approach if you want to get started with this kind of development, which is very different from iOS development and Mac development, like we talked about earlier? Uh, what are some ways that you can get started? You think? The tricky part is, I mean, the best pay, the best case would be if you need something, right? If you develop some something that you actually need, um, and in order to to reach that point, you should start writing more um, more command line tools in Swift, like or in general, start developing command line tools, and even better, maybe you're you're playing around with Linux from time to time, um, have a small a small web server or something like that. It doesn't need to be Swift, just a Linux system, and start using Swift there for for administration and so on. So you can see those are things that are lacking uh, that I need, and then and then start playing around with that. Um, another idea, obviously, is to look what what other more popular system languages offer, like Go or Rust, and and see if there's something that sounds or looks interesting that doesn't exist for Swift and, uh, and maybe start in that direction and implement something like that. The, the, the benefit of all this obviously is that if you create a nice package that, um, that doesn't exist yet and it, it fulfills a, a huge need, then in, in a certain near future maybe, there may be a lot of users of this package um, while uh, one additional animation library may, may not have that many users because there are already so many. Yeah, and also a great way of learning more like kind of low-level details of the platform you work on. Because one thing, we talked about the differences between the Mac and iOS, but once you start diving into this more system level, you actually realize that things are very, very similar and they're built on exactly the same foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, then you always have to keep Linux in mind because if you want Swift to, to succeed, we need this stuff to work on Linux and not just to, to work on iOS and the Mac. But even there, since it's a Unix foundation, many things are similar. And sometimes you might be surprised by uh, how much of the things you do um, you do take for granted on iOS or the Mac actually in, in, in system space actually work just or almost the same way on Linux. Yeah, you just sometimes you just have to change the API call or, you know, call a different command line tool or something like that. But yeah, the foundations are usually there. Great. Uh, I think that's a really interesting topic. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more kind of how Swift evolves in these different kind of spaces that are not just UI related on all of Apple's platforms. So to round off the show now, I think we should answer a question from the audience. And this one comes from Nishant Desai. And Nishant wants to know how we go about exploring new APIs and how we dive deep into them. So do we find it a bit overwhelming sometimes because a new API can have many, many different things and how do we usually tackle that? 
So I think this ties into a lot what we've been discussing about like how to get into Mac development, how to get into writing system packages. Uh, but do you have some like overall tips um, on how to kind of learn new APIs in general? Now the WWDC is just around the corner. How do you plan to approach all the new stuff that will come out? One of the the, the, the general things I do is basically reading the release notes at, at WWDC to figure out what has changed. But let's say let's in a more general sense, you if you want to learn a new API, um, the hurdle is oftentimes that um, you have to ha you may have a wrong mapping in your head based on let's say it's an API for an online service and the mapping you have is how the UI of the online service uses the data internally like how you click and how you go through the UI but the um, API may be much different and so um, something that I always do is I start with a very simple task let's say you, you you take let's take the Instagram API for example let's say you want to post a comment and so I basically I just scroll through and click on things that look like they might do what I want. And if they are not doing it, then I'm still reading it because maybe there's something else I learn about that. And I do that until I reach the point where I understand how to post a comment. And then I take the next step that is maybe read the list of comments and I do the same again. And by going through basically rinse and repeat, I um I learn a bit more with with each iteration about the API and then then obviously um take a nice uh, client that allows you to play around with the API like playgrounds for example or for web APIs there are a lot of um tools like paw um that allow you to um to create calls against the web API and see the results and and this playing around of and spelunking I think that is the best approach of of getting a general sense of what's available and how it works and once you once you have that, um, then you can then you can actually start implementing stuff or um, or even read an advanced book on it. Yeah, spelunking is always the best approach. <laughs> uh, I totally agree, and I think that you know when you approach something new, it can always feel very intimidating. And just like we talked about Mac development before, but I think like you say, like cutting out a very, very small slice and saying like, this is what I want to start focusing on. And this is something I feel like it's something I can digest and learn about in isolation. I think that's usually a good approach. And then using something like playgrounds or checking out a new branch in your project and just like working on that there in context, uh, whichever, you know, will be suitable for the task at hand. And one thing that I think is, is a good thing to do from time to time is that as developers now in this modern era, we are often doing like stack overflow driven developments <laughs> where, you know, as soon as we hit an obstacle, we're just, okay, let me go to Stack Overflow. Let me go to Google or my search engine. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad thing, but I think as a, as a way to kind of train yourself to more like dive deeper into things, I think it can be a good idea to Maybe not have that as always as the default solution, but sometimes just like look at the header files, look at the documentation, dive deeper in. If it's open source, open it up on GitHub and see what the implementation does. And that way you start, you know, teaching yourself kind of these methodologies on how to approach a new technology. Yeah. And if in the worst case, you really end up on Stack Overflow, try to understand what's happening there. Don't just copy and paste it in, but once you copy and paste it in, take a look at the types and then go into the header files as well. Because um, there's still a lot to learn, even though, because the code also might, may not work as you expect. And so it's it's useful to take all every bit of code you see as an opportunity to understand what it's doing. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, this can, when you hear this, it can be like, well, I don't have time because I have a client who, you know, is paying me per the hour. How do I fit this into my schedule? 
But I think here it's important to kind of have a more long-term thinking than just like, you know, I know sometimes we have deadlines and we need to just get, get stuff done and that's fine. But sometimes you don't have that kind of immediate pressure and taking the, a little bit extra time, you know, we're not talking about double the time or triple the time, just taking like a couple of extra minutes just to try to understand what am I dealing with here? You, you, kind of getting that into your routine makes a huge difference, at least for me. Yeah, same here. Um, and also what, what I find useful is the, the Apple Docs sometimes are written in a very verbose way because they, they are tackling a lot of things, but you may not be interested in that much information for, for something you want to do. And so what's oftentimes helpful is to, to, to look for a tutorial on, on whatever blog. So basically to do a Google search and, and search for a nice tutorial that somebody posted on his blog, for example, have a look at that. And um, once once you read that, go back to the Apple documentation so that you have get an overview that that's a bit simpler than the ver verbose documentation from Apple. And th that may also be faster to, to help you understand what's happening. Yeah, that's a really good point, because then what you get is you get like the same topic from multiple angles. And that's always super useful because the likelihood of, of something then matching your way of thinking or your concrete use case is much, much higher. Yeah. Which is also, I forgot to mention that earlier, one thing you need to do actually on the Mac, because um, on the Mac side of things, the documentation is way worse than on iOS. There are many, many classes where basically you have no documentation at all. You basically have the name of the class and the name of the method, and that's it, not a single word. And, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes... What does, what does print do? It prints. <laughs> and sometimes you end up not understanding really what it does. And then it's useful and you can't look at the source code, right? So um, then it's really useful to see if anybody else already stumbled upon this and maybe has a nice description of what it's doing. Awesome. So thanks so much for that question, Nishant. And if you want to ask a question uh, for the show, you can submit those by just going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or you can just tweet a question to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. And even though we're not focusing as much on Q&A anymore, uh, we will still pick up all the questions that you send in and you know answer them from time to time. So we've now reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is to thank you very much, Benedict, for joining me on this episode. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was a true pleasure. And uh, I think that hopefully people uh, got a lot of great insight into how it is to be an indie developer, Mac developer, and yeah, learning about things like system packages as well. Yeah, and maybe we see uh, one new system package or more. That would be awesome. Cool. So if people want to follow you and read your fine work, uh, where should they go? So I have this very weird last name, Terhechti or Terhechte, and uh, I basically registered it everywhere. So it's uh, twitter.com slash Terhechte and github.com slash Terhechte, except for my blog, which is called much easier. It's uh, adventure.me. Yeah. So uh, as long as you learn how to spell your last name, then you're good. <laughs> yes, that's that's the, the idea behind it. Yeah, exactly. But we'll also have links in the show notes, so no worries. <laughs> I also want to thank Bitrise again. Uh, thank you so much for sponsoring this show. And make sure you click that link in the show notes to sign up for free for Bitrise and try it out and see what it can do for you. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.